How you doing, buddy? Why don't you uh, step up here for a sec? <laughs> this is uh, graduation Sunday. We, um, what you got to do is tell us, uh, kind of, out of sixth grade, really. Yeah. Where are you headed? What grade next? Oh, ninth. Ninth grade. So you're into officially high school. Okay. We'll know how to pray for all your teachers. <laughs> yeah. Small gift of appreciation. Had to give him a hard time. You just can't not, right? First John chapter four. Let's look at the first four verses. It says uh, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and the, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness. And show unto you that eternal life uh, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. I've been looking forward to getting into 1 John for, for, for quite a while. Uh, John's the author of this. Uh, this is John the Apostle. He's the same one that wrote the Gospel of John and the Book of Revelation. Uh, now, at this point, uh, John is is quite elderly. He is advanced in age, but he's still actively writing. He is he is living in and around Ephesus. That's Asia Minor. That'd be present day Turkey. Uh, the tone of the letter supports that 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 he has uh, a lot of respect from from his readership. Now, even though he's advanced in age, uh, he is still active. He is still working in the churches. One of the church fathers, early church fathers, by the name of Papias, uh, who had a direct contact with John, writes this. He says that uh, he describes John as a living and abiding voice. Now, he's the last remaining apostle. So his, uh, his, his, his testimony was highly authoritative uh, among the churches. Now, I mean, a lot of people really sought to eagerly hear what he had to say because he was the last one that had first-hand experience with the Lord Jesus. Now, the book of 1 John is one of the hardest books to outline, okay? Um, at first, it seems like the repetitive ramblings of an old man. Because he goes around and around and he comes back and he does this. But it's so much more than that. I mean, there is structure to this, but the structure is circular or, or spiraling. Uh, you know, when, when, when Paul wrote, I mean, he was, he was arrow straight, very linear, very, very logical. Uh, but John has a different style. Uh, he writes and he circles, and then he'll expand the circle, and he'll say the same thing, but he'll add more to it. And then he'll circle again and say the same thing, but he'll, he'll add more to it. Uh, and, and his spirals alternate between two main ideas. Uh, they're either the fundamental tests of either uh, doctrine and duty. One will be doctrine, one will be duty, or, or one will be principle, and one will be practice, or one will be belief, and one will be behavior. You can tell I can't decide which one I want to go with, right? It's either, you know, doctrine, principle, and belief, and duty, practice, and behavior. I just can't decide which one I like better, but they all kind of work. However you view what, 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 what John is doing here, uh, he uses repetition of these basic truths 
as a means to, to, to accentuate their importance and to help the readers and then to help us understand and remember because we learn by repetition. Now, there's a, there's a handful of words that keep showing up throughout the book. And, and notice where the emphasis is by the number of times that they're found, all right? The word fellowship occurs four times. The word hate, five. The word light occurs six times. Dark or darkness occurs seven. The word lie or a variation occurs seven times. Truth occurs 14 times. To know in whatever form it's used, 37 times. And love, 51 Right? So we can see where John's heart is. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he pins this letter to people he dearly loves. Now the overall theme of 1 John is, is, is a recall to the fundamentals of the faith, or, or kind of a back-to-basics of Christianity. And the apostle deals with, with certainties, not opinions, not conjectures. Uh, he expresses the absolute character of Christianity in very simple terms, terms that are clear, terms that are unmistakable, leaving no doubt as to the fundamental nature of what it means to be a believer. Now, it, it, it is warm. It is conversational. Uh, uh, just like a, a father having a tender, intimate conversation with his kids. John, that, that, that's the tone of this letter. And John represents the basics or, or the fundamentals of the Christian life, again, in the absolute terms. Not like Paul, who, who kind of presents uh, exceptions and deals with believers, you know, failures to meet the divine standard. John deals, you know, he, he doesn't deal with the what if I fail aspect of things. I mean, it's really only in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that we get kind of a, a break <laughs> from, from the stark, uh, absolute contrast we see here. See, the rest of the book presents truths in, in very black and white. There, there's not a lot of gray. And, and, and we can see the contrast when we talk about light and darkness, truth and lies, children of God versus children of the devil. Uh, now, those who claim to be Christians, John's going to tell us, must absolutely display the characteristics of genuine Christians. Sound doctrine, obedience, and love. Those who are truly born again have been given a new nature, and that new nature gives evidence of itself. Those who do not display the characteristics of the new nature don't have it. So that means that they were never truly born again. The issues don't center like Paul did on, on maintaining da daily fellowship with God, but, but on the application of these basic tests to either confirm that salvation has really occurred or to show that it really hasn't. Um, and, and, and we can see these, these distinctions really over in John's gospel also. Um, only someone of John's um, notoriety, of John's... Uh, preeminent status as an apostle would be able to write with this kind of unmistakable authority expecting complete obedience from his readers now after paul's battle from uh you know he 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 fought for the freedom from the law in the book of galatians that, that that's <coughs> twisted twisted judaism really uh this this gnosticism that john is dealing with 
was then the most dangerous heresy that threatened the early church for the first 300 years of its existence. And this is what John is writing against. Uh, John is combating the beginnings of this heresy that threatened to destroy the very fundamentals of the faith, which is why he stresses the fundamentals of the faith so strongly. Now, since the heresy was so acutely dangerous and the time period was so crucial for the early church uh, because it was in, in, in danger of being overwhelmed by these false teachers, John again gently and lovingly but with unquestionable apostolic authority sent this letter uh, to his sphere of influence to stop the plague of this false doctrine. Now, the immediate occasion for the letter uh, is, is uh, chapter 2, verse 19. The false teachers have left the church for whatever reason that's good, but they were harassing the church members from the outside, okay? Uh, and, and, and John's audience needed to be reassured that what they had embraced, that is that Christ had come in the flesh, was true. He assures his audience of this truth as well as the truth of the gospel in general, and he does it on two grounds. First of all, that he himself was an eyewitness of Christ, and that secondly, the Holy Spirit bears witness with the believer's spirits that the things that they hear are true. The occasion wasn't just instructional, though. John, John wanted to encourage them. He wanted to, to edify, to, to lift up. So, so quite often through the letter, we're going to hear, I have written this stuff in order that, or I have written this stuff because. And if you want to look at chapter 5, uh, verse 13, it's more or less the purpose statement for the entire book. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. He wants them not just to have the knowledge, but to have the relationship as well. Gnosticism taught that there was, the, there was a division between the physical, which was inherently bad and evil, and the spirit, which was good. And although they, they kind of thought that Jesus was kind of a deity, they denied his true humanity because they were attempting to preserve Jesus from evil. Because if, if Jesus was really physical, then he was bad. And, and if he was bad, then he couldn't save. See, it's a false teaching that's really messed up. Instead of divine revelation, the word of God standing as judgment over man's ideas, the Gnostics believe man's ideas judged God's word. And, and, and the heresy featured two basic forms. The first asserted that, that, that Jesus' physical body was not real, but only seemed to be real. John forcefully will affirm the physical reality of, of, of this by reminding them that, that he had heard and he had seen and he had handled Jesus Christ himself. Now, according to some early tradition here, another form of this heresy which John was attacking was led by a man named Serenthus. You don't really need to know that name, but... Uh, what he taught was that Christ's spirit descended on the human Jesus at Jesus' baptism. Jesus did his whole earthly ministry, but right before Jesus was crucified, that spirit left 
So just the human Jesus was crucified. Again, it's really messed up heresy. What John wrote was that the same Jesus that was baptized at the beginning of his ministry is the same person that was crucified on the cross. Chapter 5 or 6 will show us this. Just to give you an idea about John's personality and, and his thought about this, there were two early church fathers, Irenaeus and Eusebius. Weird guys, names, right? They wrote a story of Polycarp. Now, Polycarp was another church father who knew John, okay, knew, knew John personally. So, so, so Polycarp tells this story to Irenaeus and, and, and Eusebius. Uh, now, John is going to visit the public baths in the city that he's in, and he sees Serenthus inside doing whatever people do in public baths, all right? Well, when he sees him, he runs out of the building yelling, let us flee, lest the building fall, since Serenthus, the foe of all truth, is within. You get the idea. I don't want to go in there if God strikes him dead. If the building falls on him, I don't want to be there. That's, that's, that, I mean, John didn't mess around with false teachers. See, such heretical views, they destroy not only the humanity of Jesus, but, but they destroy the atonement. If Jesus isn't exactly who scripture says he is, then he can't save us. John refutes the defectors with sound doctrine, and he showed no tolerance whatsoever for those who pervert the truth of the word of God. He labels those that depart from the truth as false prophets in chapter 4, as those who try to deceive in chapter 2 and 3, as antichrists in chapter 2 verse 18, and he pointedly identifies the ultimate source of all this defection from sound doctrine as demonic in chapter 4. John emphasizes the need for obedience to God's laws because true love to God is obedience to his commands. How do we, as lessers, show love to a greater? Well, he has to tell us how. How do we, so far below God, express love to God? Well, he has to tell us how to do that appropriately. And he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So that is how we demonstrate our love to God. Now the constant repetition of three sub-themes we're going to see are, um, are going to reinforce the overall theme regarding faithfulness to, to, to the basics. Again, the basics of Christianity. It's joy, holiness, and security, or joy, holiness, and assurance. Now, by faithfulness to the basics, his readers will experience these three results continually. Now, maybe not constantly, but continually. These three factors will reveal the key cycle of true spirituality in 1 John. It's a proper belief in Jesus produces obedience to his commands, obedience issues in love for God and fellow believers. When these three, that sound faith, obedience, and love, operate in concert together, they result in joy, holiness, and security or assurance. They constitute the evidence. They constitute the litmus test of a true Christian. So as we travel through this letter, we'll discover that John frequently repeats himself, and he does that on purpose because he goes in circles. He weaves these themes into these chapters. 
obedience, love, and truth. 1 John 1 and 2, he emphasizes fellowship, and he tells us that the conditions of fellowship are obedience, love, and truth. The other half of the letter, John deals with sonship, us being born of God. And how can a person really know that they're a child of God? Well, John says sonship is revealed by obedience, love, and truth. Obedience, love, and truth. Now, why did John use these particular tests of fellowship and sonship? By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's because a spirit-controlled mind knows and understands truth. A spirit-controlled heart demonstrates love. A spirit-controlled will inclines us to obedience. Now, with all of that, look at verse 1 again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. It says that which was, not that which began to be, but was essentially before everything. So that which was, not, not that which came into existence, but, but it already existed. John has reference to those things which were true of our Lord since before the beginning of time. See, if, if a man is wrong about Jesus Christ, he is wrong about God. Because Jesus Christ is the final and complete revelation of God to mankind. Since he predated all of creation, he must be uncreated. Since he is uncreated, he must be without beginning. If he is without beginning, he must be deity. He must be God. So in the beginning characterizes the absolute divine word as he was before the foundation of the world. And he was at, he was present at the foundation of the world. Now, John wrote several books here. Okay, John wrote his gospel, okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He wrote the gospel to prove Jesus' deity, assuming his humanity. Here in 1 John, his epistle, he, he proves his humanity, assuming his deity. So we look at these words in verse 1. Heard, seen, looked upon, handled. It's a series of rising gradation, they call it here. Seeing is more convincing proof than hearing, handling than seeing. I mean, he had heard and seen and touched. I mean, these were steadily increasing emphases of the reality of Jesus Christ. So that which we have heard, namely from Jesus Christ himself, including all of Christ's teachings about himself. The life, Jesus himself. He assumed a mouth. He assumed a tongue that he might utter words of life. And the, the apostles not only heard of him, the apostles heard him themselves. So is that which we have heard. And, and, and the way it's written, it's like that which we have heard and, and is still ringing in our ears. What would it have been like to remember what Jesus actually physically said? To remember the words because you heard them yourself. That's what John's saying here. And then it says, seen with our eyes. 
showing that it's not just, just, just imagination on John's part. It wasn't some optical illusion because Jesus had an actual human body so he could be seen and he could be heard. That which we have seen with our eyes. See, the word became visible. It couldn't just be heard. It could be seen. It could be seen publicly. It could be seen privately. At a distance. He could be seen close up. Which may be told in, in, in the expression, with our eyes. With the use and exercise of everything our eyes could do, they did. We saw him in his life and ministry we saw him at his transfiguration on the mount we saw him hanging on the cross bleeding and dying and dead we saw him after his resurrection we saw him and john is assuring his readers that he not only had that sensory impression on his retina but that he, that, that, that he understood what he was looking at that which we have seen with discernment by means of our eyes and which was, was, was as a present result still in our memory. He could remember seeing the actual events because John was there and he saw the actual events. Then it says looked upon. I'm not sure why John adds this except that the Holy Spirit wanted it added. So means to look upon as a wondrous spectacle, to, to steadfastly place your eye, to, to, to look contemplatively. The Greek word is theomai. It's the word we get our theater word from. To behold attentively, to contemplate. So, so it's like that which we have gazed upon as a thing to watch and hold our attention. It says we watched Jesus in action. And then he goes even further. And our hands have handled, touched, felt the word of life. Now this refers to the full conviction that our Lord afforded his apostles of the truth, the reality, the solidity and organization of his body. It wasn't some spirit body. It wasn't some imaginary body. It wasn't some ethereal thing that phased in and out of reality. No, it was an actual, real, solid, physical body. The words have handled means to touch, to feel, to examine closely. See, they, they, they touched him. They handled him. They investigated his claims to have a body of flesh and blown bones. Think about it. They, they touched. They touched God. That's what John is saying. As, as the logos, the, the total concept of God, Jesus is the word of God in the sense that, that he is the total concept of God seen through a human medium and they got to touch him. John says Jesus is real. Don't think for a second that Jesus wasn't real. See, their denial of the reality of the incarnate life of Christ could be countered by the experience of the eyewitnesses whose testimony was founded in, 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 in hearing and seeing and touching. They were, they were there with Jesus. Now look at verse 2. 
says, For the life was manifest, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. You know, we can hold you know, a prism and shine a light into the prism, and, and the light breaks up into its component parts, right? You remember how to tell us Roy G. Biv, you can tell the colors of the rainbow, right? We see the beauty of the light separated through, through the prism. The beauty of the life and essence that God is, is broken up into its various parts, such as love and grace and humility and kindness, as it's seen through the prism of the human life of Jesus Christ. The incarnation of the Son of God was the making visible to human understanding what God is. So the message of John is that since the believer is a partaker of this life, it's an absolute necessity that he show the ethical and spiritual qualities that are a part of the essential nature of God. And that those things be shown in their own life. If these things are, are entirely absent, John's going to end up saying that that person is devoid of the life of God and that they're not saved because saved people as a prism will, 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 will manifest the parts of Jesus' life. Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That the believer may be advanced to the same level as, as John the Apostle. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that, that, that there, can be, there can be fellowship. See, again, he, he repeats what he has said in verse 1 here in verse 3. He has seen and heard. See, the incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh, it's the basis for fellowship. And if there was no incarnation, there could be no, no fellowship between you and the Father. There could be no fellowship between us. Without the God-man, we would never have relationship, partnership with the Father. Now many folks, including some Christians, have the idea that witnessing means wrangling over different belief systems or sitting down and arguing about which church is best. But that isn't what John has in mind here. Uh, he tells us that the witnessing, the declaring, means sharing our spiritual experiences with others, both by the way we live and the way we speak. See, in Acts 4.20, it says, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now, what had they seen and heard? They had seen and heard Jesus. But when he says ye also, he wants to include his writers and 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 he wants to include us who have not seen Jesus in the flesh the way John has but that we can still have this level of fellowship and the word fellowship although it only occurs four times is one of the most important words in the book of first John so so we need to do a little bit of word study here uh, of, of this translation of fellowship uh, because, well, first of all, the word used, it's used in, in, in a couple of different senses. And, and secondly, our idea of fellowship and, and Scripture's idea of fellowship aren't, aren't exactly the same, all right? The idea in the word is, is, is that of a person having a joint participation with another person because they possess things in common, 
right? A very, a very touching uh, use of, of the verbal form of this word was found uh, about 400 years after Christ in an inscription. A doctor of medicine had a wife who was also a doctor of medicine who had passed away, and he writes an inscription to her, and, and, and he uses our word fellowship, and it describes it perfectly. He says, as with you alone, I shared my life. That's what it means to have fellowship. John wrote his gospel so the readers who were not eyewitnesses of the life of the Lord might enjoy that joint participation with him, could enjoy the firsthand knowledge of the Lord as gained through the senses of sight and hearing and touch. John wanted them to be engrossed in the life of Jesus the way he was. And when his readers studied his gospel under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they'd be looking at the Lord Jesus as he appeared on earth through John's eyes. They would be hearing him speak through John's ears uh, and would, would be touching him with John's hands and, 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 and having the supernatural Holy Spirit energized firsthand knowledge of the Lord Jesus. They would be able to have a real, practical actual, intimate companionship with Jesus that John had. But as we ponder the life of our Lord through spirit-ground lenses, we see him in our mind's eye as that, so that it, it, it creates an intelligent fellowship that can be enjoyed. A joint participation on the part of the believer in John's first-hand account so that it will, it will become real. It can become real and practical companionship with Christ. And that is exactly what John is saying in, in, in the words, and the fellowship indeed which is ours is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 4 uses the word partakers. We are partakers of the divine nature. It's the same word used over here in verse 3 uh, for, 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 for fellowship. To have fellowship with the Lord Jesus in, in, in the sense of of companionship in the sense of, of partnership, this, this deep, deep interest and, and involvement, you have to have common likes and dislikes, right? You don't fellowship with somebody you don't have anything in common with. So you have to have common likes and dislikes with Jesus, which means you have to love what he loves, which is righteousness. You have to hate what he hates, which is sin. You have to have a common nature, a divine nature. You have to have uh, something in common with, 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 with God the Father and, and, and with God the Son. And, and how does that happen with you being human? Because you have trusted Jesus as your Savior and he has given you that, 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 that divine nature so that you can have things in common with God the Son and God the Father. So that makes, he, makes, he makes fellowship possible. But look at verse 4. It says, And these things write we unto you. Why? 
that your joy may be full. John wanted believers, instead of being bombarded by, by, the, by the problems of the false teachers, and they were getting discouraged, and they were wondering if what they believed was really right and true. They had lost their joy, and, and, and living for Christ became uncertain and a drudgery, and, and they didn't know how to do it. And, and John wants to no, no, that's not what the Christian life's about. Your relationship with Jesus should be joy-filled. One commentary says that believers may be enlarged and advanced in holy joy. These things write we unto you that your joy may be full. The gospel dispensation is not properly a dispensation of fear. It's not a dispensation of sorrow and dread. But of peace and of joy. In Acts 13.52, it says that, uh, that, that the disciples were, were, were filled with, with what? Joy and with the Holy Ghost. Another commentary says, uh, were they confirmed in their holy faith how they would rejoice? See, true joy comes only from fellowship with God. And John had discovered that satisfying reality uh, is, is not to be found in things, not to be found in thrills, experiences, but in a person. Now, not in knowledge about the person, but in the person, Jesus Christ, God the Son, Christ himself. He's the source, the object, the center of your joy. And it's fellowship with him that creates joy. You say, well, I'm not very joyful. You've got to ask yourself, why? Why aren't you joyful in your relationship with Christ? Because he wants you to have joy. See, fellowship, fellowship is Christ's answer to a lonely life. And I'm going to say that again. Fellowship is Christ's answer to a lonely life. So if you come to church and, and leave right after church like your pants are on fire, you do yourself harm and, and you do your family harm. You need fellowship with one another you have fellowship with jesus christ you have fellowship with god the father but you need you need fellowship with one another so fellowship is christ's answer to the loneliness of life joy is his answer to the emptiness the hollowness of life so i'm going to say that again too Joy is his answer to the emptiness, the hollowness of life. Now let's, let's wrap this up. We see in these four verses, which is just the introduction to the book of 1 John, uh, that John lays out the reality, okay, the realness of Jesus Christ. Jesus is real, John screams. Well, how do you know, John? I mean, all these false teachers are telling us all sorts of things. How do you know? John says, because I have heard him with my own ears. I have seen him with my own eyes. 
I have contemplated him with my own mind. I have touched him with my own hands. And, John says, it has filled me with irrepressible joy. And I want, John says, I want your joy to be as real and as overpowering as mine is. I want you to have, John says, I want you to have partnership. I want you to have the companionship with Jesus that I have. But if you'll have it, you must first know and believe and live that Jesus is real. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Don't answer them out loud. Are you living as if Jesus is real. The opposite of that would be living as a practical atheist. Uh, You may come to church and do a lot of religious stuff, you know, but uh, if you're not living as if Jesus is real, you're living as if he's not. That's, That's practical atheism. Do you say Jesus is real, but live for yourself? Or live contrary to what Jesus has commanded? See, that Jesus is real has real consequences for us. That Jesus is real had better affect everything that we think and do and say and are. That Jesus is real had better be changing our lives. So what in your life needs to change? To reflect that Jesus is real. What behavior needs to change to reflect that Jesus is real? What thinking needs to change to reflect that Jesus is real? Jesus is real. What are you going to do with that? Stand with your heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, this morning we can come to you with just a meager and inadequate thank you for the reality of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you would work in us once again, that if there is any area of our life that, that, that we withhold from you, any portion of our thinking that we are not 100% convinced that Jesus is real, that you convict us, you expose that to us, that we may repent of it, forsake it, and line up with what you say. Father, thank you that you so desire fellowship with us that you sent your son to die in our place. That by the shedding of his blood, he provided salvation And that even the faith to believe you've given to us as a gift. Because you knew we couldn't do it by ourselves. In us, we just don't have the capacity. But Father, for those of us who know Christ as Savior, Lord, I pray that, that, that we remember that our Jesus is not some storybook character. 
But Father, he is real and he is seated at your right hand right now, ever living to make intercession for us. And oh, Father, help us to live as if Jesus is real. Father, make it affect every single corner of our life. That as John so lovingly tries to encourage and convince his, his readers that, that they don't have to worry about what the false teachers of the world says. They can have joy in their companionship with Christ. They can have it right now. Father, please create in us that same joy, that, that irrepressible, uncontainable joy of knowing Jesus. Father, if there be anyone here this morning that has not met Christ, that has not had their sins forgiven, Lord, I pray that you would convict and draw them, convince them, Father, that Jesus is their only hope and that he so eagerly awaits to save them from their sins and establish fellowship with them and with the Father. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit this morning work as only he can. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Keith, would you come ahead? While well, you're getting your hymn books and going to 326, uh, do you have a joy in your heart this morning? Amen. Let's sing about it. I've got a joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? I've got a joy, 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 joy down in my heart, down in my heart to stay. All right, three, two, six. Let's sing three, two, six on the first.